0: All right, I'm going backwards again, a little bit to now that we've finished, we talked about chapter one from the perspective of, uh, the revelation of God. And then we talked about Jesus as being superior to the messengers, the prophets and Jesus being superior to the messengers, the angels. And then we talked about chapter two, Jesus being the founder or the pioneer of salvation. Uh, starting at verse 5. Now I'm going to go back one more time through a part of chapter 1 just to point out some of the things that it says about Jesus. And I'm doing this because today's sermon, going through the Apostles' Creed, is on the second person of the Trinity, is on Jesus. And so this gives me the opportunity to double dip a little bit and say some more things that I didn't have room or time to fit in the sermon, but that also apply to exactly what we've been talking about. Oh, in the, in the first chapter of Hebrews and the author is making the point about Jesus being supreme. So if you have an ESV, um, it probably even puts the chapter heading on chapter one, the supremacy of God's son. Um, and what, what the author is going to do is, Again, making the case Jesus is superior to both kinds of angel, both kinds of messengers, angels and other kinds, he's then going to quote the Old Testament a lot. But what's significant about this is he is quoting the Old Testament to talk about Jesus. So he's going to take a bunch of Old Testament passages and he's going to apply them to Jesus and say that God makes these claims about Jesus himself. And so this is good for us to read and to think about because it helps us think, in more detail about who Jesus is and what the Bible says about him. But I do want you to especially remember this passage. You know, a lot of times you find yourself in conversations with non-Christians or with former Christians who um, don't know anything about what Christianity teaches, but they've watched PBS or the History Channel and they they know how to spout one-liners from liberal academia and liberal scholarship that to their way of thinking just destroys Christianity. How could you even possibly believe this nonsense? And one of the ones that you hear said a lot by people that don't read or think is that the Bible never makes the claim that Jesus is God. That Jesus himself never makes that claim, that the Bible doesn't make that claim, that the only people who made that claim were the early church who were trying to rise Jesus up to this position of authority and supremacy so that they would get your money and you would join their church and follow them. And besides that being, uh, as one of my favorite movie lines, stupid, the stupidest thing I've ever heard, um, you have lots of places where Jesus himself makes the claim that he is God but what the author of Hebrews does here to converted Jews is turn around their old Testament and say, do you not see how this whole thing was pointing to Jesus? Do you not see that God, the father, this God that you worship Yahweh said time and time again, that my son is himself God and that Jesus is the son of God. So that's what I want to look at from these uh, quotes that are referenced here in Hebrews chapter one. And uh, point out a handful of things we learn about Jesus. So the first one is he is the heir of all or the heir of all things is implied. He is the son of the living God, the one who receives the glory of God's kingdom. The proof for this is verse Five, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, who's got 2 Samuel 7, 14? I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So we go back to Samuel and we find the word of God telling us that God has one who will be his son, who will uh, receive the punishment for the sin. And so uh, the author of the letters to the Hebrews says, the Bible never said that about an angel. The Bible never said that about one of the prophets. The Bible says that about the son of God. He is supreme. The second one, he is the creator of all things. That is, Jesus is, the phrase used in Greek is the maker of the ages. He is the maker of all physical things, but he's the maker of eternity, of time itself, of the ages. And you look at verses 10 through 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. So we think about time as this immovable thing. We think about time as being sort of in the first order magnitude of the universe. It's one of the, one of the uh, laws or foundational rules of the universe is this sense of time. And yet before there was time, God was, and he made, he laid the foundations of the earth. And when all these things that he has made are gone, he will still remain. And in fact, be unchanged. Uh, who's got Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. So the, the Jews would have been familiar with that with that Psalm, they would have read that Psalm many times, knowing that it applies to Yahweh, to God, the father. And yet here, the author of the Hebrews says, no, it does apply to God. It applies to the second person of the Trinity, God's expression of himself, as we talked about last week, the way God revealed himself is through the son. And so that same passage that they knew, all right, got a category for that. Now the author of Hebrews is saying that was Jesus all along. Um, And so absolutely the claim is made that Jesus is the maker of all things. The third one, it says he is the radiance of God's glory. Now that's the exact phrase that's used. Um, And that Greek term harkens back to the... (laughs) this always makes us laugh and think about uh, TV preachers, but the cloud of glory, the Shekinah of God's glory that was around the tabernacle before it became a mockery of modern television preaching. It was actually the word that represents the cloud, the presence, the glory of God, where God would hide his glory in a cloud so that the people would be aware of his presence, but would not be Blinded or destroyed or consumed by it. And so when you call him in verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God, that he is the, the very God who dwelt with Israel in the tabernacle. The very God that was visible to the Israelites is, in fact, the second person of the Trinity, is Jesus Christ. And it's passages like this one at the beginning of the Hebrews, and not only these, but it's passages like these, that are why uh, we say, as I did in the sermon last week, that the only way we've ever known God is through Jesus Christ. Every time God has revealed himself in history, he's revealed himself through Jesus Christ. The incarnation is one and the supreme version of that when God became flesh, but all these other versions where people interacted with God uh, in Jewish history, um, those were Jesus Christ as well. It says he's the radiance of God's glory, and then it says he is the exact representation of his being. Now this word literally means, I wish I could write on the board, this literally means the character of his essence. And the Greek word character is an imprint. It's a, it's a stamp. It is a absolute copy of what the thing is. It is a perfect picture or representation. It's the, the, I guess stamp is as good as we'll do. So if you had a rubber stamp and you put a picture on it and you got it perfectly covered with ink and you laid it down perfectly centered, you could be a hundred percent confidence that one was the exact imprint of the other, that there was nothing missing from one to the other. And that's what the author of Hebrew says that Jesus is to the father. But he says he's the exact imprint or the character of his upostasias, his, his, his his being, his essence, his nature. And so the, the whatever it is to be God, <laughs> like if I say whatever it is to be Karen, Right, There is something about Karen that is uniquely Karen that nobody else has. She's a human, lots of other people are human. She's a female, lots of other people are female. She's. You can take all these things about Karen that you say, well, lots of other people are that. But there is something about you that nobody else is. That is your essence, your unique character of Karen. Char- not character in the way we think of morals, but the essence of what it is to be you. There's no such thing as an exact imprint of that for you. But what the author of Hebrews says is there is such thing as the exact imprint of that for God, and it's Jesus Christ and also the Holy Spirit. But that's not what this passage is about. Um, He is the exact representation. So you think about the argument that the author is trying to make here. Um, of Jesus being supreme to all the other uh, philosophies or worldviews, all the false gods, but very specifically in this passage, Jesus's word being superior to all the other prophets. Don't go back to those prophets because you have Jesus's word, which is better. How can the author say with such confidence that Jesus's word is better than all the other messengers? They were sent by God. They were divinely inspired. How can you say Jesus's word is better than theirs? because he is the exact imprint of the father. Exactly. There is no better messenger. He is the ultimate revealer of God because he is God, not just in what he says, but who he is. Uh, and so that's the exact representation of his being. Chapter one also says, he sustains all things by his powerful word. Now, uh, literally this means carrying all things, which is a way I think is very helpful for us to think about sustaining and especially to help others think about sustaining, or maybe our kids. You say, well, God made us and God sustains us. And you think, well, that's nice. God thought about us and he thinks about us every now and then now. Nope. That's not what sustain means. Sustain means carrying. Uh, the idea being that if God were to take his attention away for one one hundredth of a second from our lives, we would cease to be. We would absolutely cease to be. Uh, And so when he carries all things, sustains all things by his power for the world, he presides over every single thing that happens in life. Um, Not just that he's the ultimate revealer of God, but he is the one who by his word acts and has kingly dominion over the whole world. Um, So I think that's something important for us to think about because When the psalmists cry out, you know, God has forsaken me, God has forgotten me, God has turned his ear to me, they're expressing the human experience, not reality. So it's easy for us to feel and to think, God's forgotten about me, God doesn't care about me, or at least God doesn't care about the situation, why won't God do something, why won't God listen? Those are normal things to think But what we need to know intellectually is Christ is at every moment carrying all things. They are completely within the confines of his safe hands. Otherwise, we would cease to be. So it's good for us to keep that in mind. Another one. It says he provided purification for sins. So I'm at the end of verse three still after making purification for sins. This is another way to refer to his priestly activities. Christ is the one who offers the sacrifice. He is, in fact, the offered, the one who is the sacrifice. And just like a normal priest, he offers sacrifice for the purification of his people. He only has one little line about it here, uh, the author does, but this is going to be a major topic that Jake is going to talk about next week, which is Christ the great high priest and how not only is Christ better as a uh, as a prophet, but Christ is better as a priest than any human priest ever has been. Look at the the next phrase at the end of verse three, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now I've mentioned this one before. The concept of sitting down is important, uh, in, in, uh, in Hebrew and in Greek Literature it denotes completion and finality. You sit down when something is done. The work is done and accomplished. Uh, there was no concept of breaks, there was just the concept of finish. Uh, the Old Testament priest would sit down, having made sacrifice, and then what would the Old Testament priest have to do the next week? He'd have to get up and do it again. And so this contrast here is of Old Testament priests who would get back up again, again, and again, and offer more sacrifices again and again because their work was never finished because they had their own sin, much less the continuing sin of the people. And yet when Jesus made his sacrifice, he was able to sit because he was finished. His sacrifice covered uh, all the sins of his people. Things were all completed. He is the final accomplishment of what God has to say. And it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that's the position of power and authority. I'll talk about that in the sermon. To be at the right hand of the Father is to be glorified in a very profound way. It's the place of honor and the place of rule. So if you look at verse 13, quoting the Old Testament, it says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And again, we're going back to... Um, Things that were said of David that at, at the time, the Jewish people would have thought, oh, David, he's the best king of all. But what happened to David? He failed and he died. And he right, all the things that he accomplished, he accomplished only partially. And so even of the angels, God never said this. And yet he is saying it of Jesus Christ. Um, you look at verses, go back a page, well, for me, a page. You go back and you look at verses eight and nine. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. In a way, that would be true of David as the greatest of the human kings. But even of David, it was incomplete and it wasn't, it wasn't fully true. Um, and so of Jesus Christ, it would be fully and completely true. All these Old Testament realities show Christ for who he really is. This is why um, when Jesus comes back, After the resurrection and he's walking with his disciples, one of the things that he had to teach his disciples was how this whole Old Testament spoke of him. Now, that doesn't mean what some people seem to take it to mean these days, which is that every single verse in the Old Testament you can find Jesus in. That's not a real helpful uh, endeavor. The idea is everything that the Old Testament teaches and prophesies and predicts and promises, those things are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can go back to these things that were said of David and you say, yeah, that seems true of David in a human sense. But then the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and you say, wow, there's a whole second level to that where we can see even more that this is, um, that this is great uh, of Jesus Christ. And notice there in verse 8. But of the son, he says, so of Jesus Christ, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So again, the idea that the New Testament makes no claims of the divinity of Jesus Christ is utterly absurd. Um, And it's not just the New Testament writers that do it. Jesus himself does it. But um, you have to go pretty early to get to people who don't claim that Jesus is God. In fact, you have to go before John the Baptist because he was the one who started it. (laughs) So the objective of this whole passage is to show that Christ is the superior revelation. The objective of the whole book is to show that Christ is superior above everything else. But he opens it, and that's the reason I wanted to come back to this in preparation for this morning's sermon. It really is unbelievable if you slow down and you go through these passages, the argument that the author of the letter to the Hebrews is making Um, Christ is the superior revelation. So if you start at the beginning of chapter one, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's everything we're accustomed to. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Christ is the superior revelation. Well, why is Christ the superior revelation? Prove that. Well, he appointed a mayor of all things and through him, he created the whole world And he's the radiance of God's glory, and he's the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he made purification for sins. And after he did that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Wow, that's quite a claim you're making there, author of the letter to the Hebrews. Prove it. Put your money where your mouth is. And what the author does is he says, okay, let's take the entire book of Psalms and let's show you, and not just Psalms, Samuel, let's, let's go through the old Testament and let's show you how God has always been saying this. And so what you get from verse five until verses 13 are just proof text after proof text, after proof text, Jesus is the superior prophet. He's the superior priest and he's the superior King, um, All three of these offices existed in the Old Testament before Jesus. And so the Jewish audience was very familiar with the importance of these three roles. We need prophets. They give us the word of God. We need priests. They make sacrifices for sins. We need kings. They lead us and they exercise dominion and lordship. But all of their kings for thousands of years of history were flawed. And all of the work that their priests did were incomplete. And all of their prophets were reliable unless they were false prophets, in which case they were wrong and you had to stone them. So with all of this stuff that's good, but not quite perfect into that, we introduce Jesus Christ. We need his prophetic word. So we recognize our sinfulness. We need his priestly act so that we're redeemed by his blood. We need his kingly rule so that we have his law laid out before us. And with all of those things, we have nothing inferior whatsoever we have the complete supremacy of Jesus Christ. Thoughts, comments? And that was not much new there, but Jake? Uh, I was just picking up on him being the imprint him being different as a prophet. It's amazing if you think about it at a human level, that the Bible from the beginning shows the fault the faults of all of the guys who speak for God. Mm-hmm. I mean every one of the heroes of the faith has major flaws that you see in either direct sin or yep. you know. Worrying, and then all, and then all the apostles after, who come and write scripture, you see their faults and you see their flaws, and you see them, you know, being faithless and all these other things, and the only one who isn't like that is Christ. And and it's it's interesting, um, being a counter argument to, again, the liberal view is, in other religions that are false. Their scriptures and accompanying writings are hagiography. They are uh, the, the, the whitewashing of the history. All of our prophets were perfect. The prophet Muhammad was perfect and never did anything wrong. And the Buddha and the... Like you read all about this and these guys never did anything that was wrong. And then you read the Bible, which supposedly was revised by editors over thousands of years to make... They did a terrible job if their goal was to make the followers of God look good. The followers of God look dumb and faithless and weak. And I mean, you see amazing things happen right before your eyes. And then five minutes later, give us the golden calf because we don't know who this Yahweh guy is, right? So it, in the, the New Testament, uh, the same way. If you think about the New Testament being as the, as the anti-Christian folks claim, The church gathered the books that helped the church to remain in power. Is the church that dumb that it would say, Peter is the head of the church. You should follow Peter. His word is perfect. Peter cannot sin. But oh, by the way, we're going to include these books in the Bible because they're the real word of God. And what they teach you about Peter is dummy. (laughs) Right? Um, They show humans as humans, but they show Christ as perfectly Christ. Uh, He is far superior to all of them. And that's good. You know, I always find encouragement in, in the apostles because I am a lot more like Paul or Peter on my best days than I am like Christ. Uh, And so it's nice to know that this is something that the followers of Christ have always been wrestling with. Other thoughts? It says in verse four, the name he inherited. Think about name as being in the Hebrew concept being, uh, reputation as much as a single name. So the fact that, and reputation is not even the great word, but when we talked about, um, uh, not taking the Lord's name in vain in the third commandment, and we talked about how it means not with words, misrepresenting his attributes or his nature, Jesus inherited all the name in that sense of it as angels have a pretty impressive name, right? Ain't the, the reputation, again, thinking more broadly, they have a pretty impressive one. The prophets have a pretty impressive name. These are the prophets of God. They're sent of messengers. But the name, the reputation, the weight of who they are understood to be is inferior to what Jesus inherited, which is son of God.